This morning's reading is from John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak to us from his word. Would you join me in prayer for a moment? Father God, we thank you for the scriptures and thank you that we read that the unfolding of your word brings light. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak truth into our lives today. Help me as I speak to open up your word. Lead us into the company of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning we start a new sermon series, and it's about the road to the cross. And I've given myself the title, Three Steps to a Fulfilled Life. Three Steps to a Fulfilled Life. And even as I wrote that, I wondered if it sounded a little bit like overreach. Is it claiming too much? I do know that titles which have numbers in it and lists are very appealing. If John Buckham was giving his talk, it would be 39 steps, wouldn't it, to a fulfilled life? And you probably think that talk was a bit too long. The Times ran a series not so long ago 
of 10 books you should read before you die. And shortly after they published that, The Guardian, somewhat, I think, in competition, had a, a feature, 100 books you should read before you die. And I've never quite known whether that's because they thought their readership read faster or lived longer. And, and then in the travel section of a newspaper, there were uh, 10 places you should visit before you die. And I thought I could do a little sermon series, two places you could visit after you die. <laughs> but, but, but I'm sticking to the title this morning, Three Steps Towards a Fulfilled Life. And I want to encourage each of us by saying right at the start, each of these steps are possible for every single one of us, irrespective of how old or young you are, of your intellect, of your financial resources, or your track record in life so far, if you're so minded, you could take each of these three steps. That said, not everybody here, not everyone listening will choose to take these steps. Well, let's go back to the passage, and I'm going to and draw out what these steps are. Let's remind ourselves of what we just had read to us, the situation of a whole story today. The story begins with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And we're told, we're focused on these Greeks who were there at the time. Now, these Greeks were traveling. We don't really know why they were traveling. We know very, very little about them. But apparently it was not uncommon for Greeks to travel to try and find themselves sort of um, they were the gap year students of many years ago I suppose and they find themselves in Jerusalem when it's very crowded indeed now Jerusalem has always been a crowded city but they went during Passover and during the Passover the population of Jerusalem would expand about fourfold to what it normally was like so it really was packed out a bit like if you find yourself in central London around Buckingham Palace on May the 6th this year. You know, Buckingham Palace is always crowded by tourists in the summer, but on May the 6th, it will be really jam-packed because it's Coronation Day. But it wasn't just that it was Passover that made Jerusalem crowded this particular year, because John tells us there was now a new element to the crowd. People wanted to know about Jesus and we're told specifically why and I'll, I'll read the relevant bit now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word many people because they'd heard that he performed this sign went out to meet him the Pharisees said to one another see this is getting us nowhere look how the whole world has gone after him and so much was this the case that actually, if we'd had time, we could have read a little bit of a backstory and seen that Jesus coming into Jerusalem was absolutely fated by people who greeted him as their saviour. We, we now know it as Palm Sunday, but if you think back in real time walking through it, it must have been an absolutely staggering event that crowds lined the roads, lined the pathway, and keep shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David, which means save us, save us. And really what they're saying is bring on the revolution. We want to be set free from the Romans. We've been expecting this to happen. Surely you're the man. Surely you're the man. 
And in the middle of all this chaos, in the middle of this hubbub, in the middle of the crowd, it's at that moment that these Greeks go up to Jesus' friends and they say, Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. The timing couldn't have been worse, but the request couldn't have been better. This is the first step towards a fulfilled life. And I want you to know it's not a step you take once in your life. It's a step that we take every single day. Really to make it our prayer, sir, we want to see Jesus. When that's what's going on in your heart, that is a big step in the right direction. There's a cry in there, isn't there? Expressing curiosity, expressing a spiritual hunger. So it raises a very obvious question, really. Do you want to see Jesus? And amongst our friends and our family, do they really want to see Jesus? And the disturbing answer for very many is no, not really. I'm not sure that they ever stop to think about it. I don't think it's a conscious decision, I don't want to see Jesus. It's just that life is so organized and life is now a habit that he doesn't get a look in and we don't stop to think about that. Our template for life, or for many people, is, nah, not really interested in seeing Jesus. Let me give you an example. Slightly unfair of me just to pick up one example, but I'm going to all the same. From an article I read in a magazine not so long ago, where Dame Joan Bakewell was just musing out loud about how she was going to spend her days. She's now, I think, in her 80s. And this is what she said about how she's going to spend the time that she's got left and what she does with her family. We discuss our plans for the future, and I wait for spring. I wait for the time to pass until the warmth returns. What is this waiting? Nothing more than passing through time aimlessly, willing it to pass more quickly like a child eagerly waiting for Christmas, rushing on towards what comes next until nothing does. Does this year have a purpose? Does nature, does time? I know the answer to all these things is no. And of course, when I read that, I want to say, Joan, hang on a minute. There is more to life than just sitting around trying to kill time, waiting for time to go by. Frankly, <laughs> you need to seek Jesus. People are just too busy in the everyday rut of life. And Jesus recognized this. Jesus has said to his own contemporaries that on the day he comes back, people will be investing in the stock exchange. People will be buying and selling. People will be giving their children in marriage. People will be just going to work as normal. But for these Greeks in the story, it wasn't like that. Sir, we want to see Jesus. And I want to say to you, that would be a very good thing, a very good step, if you just started there. And if anyone happens to be listening, watching, or you're sitting here today, and you've sort of, in your mind, written off Christianity, but you've never looked at Jesus, I'd say that's a mistake. 
you might at least have a courtesy to look at the person that you're rejecting before you decide. In my former church in Cambridge, uh, a previous vicar, a man called Charles Simeon, had engraved on the wooden pulpit in a place where only he could see it, the words, Sir, we would see Jesus. Just to remind him that every time he stood up, he should point people to Jesus. And I'd like to take you to see Jesus this morning. I'm sure that the Greeks, when they put in that request, probably wanted a private audience with Jesus. We know that they'd heard about the raising of Lazarus, but maybe they'd heard about what a phenomenal teacher he was and that he drew large crowds. Maybe they'd heard about the wedding in Cana where he turned water into wine. Maybe they knew about him walking on water. I don't know what they knew and what they didn't know, but they wanted time with him face to face. Well, they would see Jesus at the peak of his powers and they would witness a more enduring miracle than any of the miracles I've mentioned so far. But it looks nothing like the miracles I've mentioned so far. They will see him die. And Jesus regarded his death in his mid-30s not as a disaster, but as actually necessary to accomplish the work that God has set before him. To use his own words about his own death, this was his hour of glory. In a sense, the Greeks arrive in Jerusalem in time for a coronation. But the crowning glory is a cross. Today, we're not so shocked by that. But if I use this illustration, perhaps you will be shocked. You know, imagine that on May the 6th, on the coronation day of King Charles, imagine that he were to process all the way from Buckingham Palace to where he's being crowned. And then, with all the crowds around and with all the noise outside of jubilation, he stripped off all his royal clothes and his robes and instead he was crucified and nailed to a piece of wood. That would shock us. That's what goes on here to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first step is to seek him. The second step is to contemplate the cross, which we're going to do now. What is it that you see when you contemplate the cross or survey the cross? Well, I think the most obvious thing that we would see, because it would hit us, is the cruelty of it. And of course, the New Testament writers don't really major on this in any way whatsoever, most likely because they'd seen it themselves. It was known to be an excruciating death. It was designed to be torture. They didn't need to emphasize that, but Jesus acknowledges it when he says, now my soul is troubled, which really is deeply, deeply troubled, and no wonder who wouldn't be. And yet at the same time, Jesus also said it was his calling card. He said when he was lifted up, he would draw everyone to himself. I felt the power of the human magnet, as Spurgeon called him. When a friend challenged me many, many years ago now, before I was a Christian, they challenged me to read a life of Jesus. 
And they told me, they pointed me to John's Gospel. I got a copy of John's Gospel here. It's a tiny little thing. You know, it wouldn't take you an hour and a half to read it, much less. And there are copies over there you can take on the way out of church if you want to. Now today, you know, I'm very familiar with this book. I must have read it through many, many times. But there was a day when I read it for the first time. I was 20 years old and I remember I, I just had it open. I was on my own and uh, I read it as a sort of quest. My friend said that you could encounter Jesus through reading the scriptures. I had no idea if that was true or not. I was highly skeptical. But I'd reached a point in my life where I was saying to God, I was certainly saying to myself, Lord, well, he wasn't my Lord then. <laughs> God, if you're there, you need to speak through this book. Christians say you do. And if you don't speak through this book, the book goes in the bin like many other books that I don't like go in the bin. And I hadn't got very far when I came across this particular sentence. Now I know it off by heart. Then I didn't. It comes from John chapter 3, so it's very early on. And it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Now to me this was news and I remember putting the book aside and sort of having a conversation with myself. Uh, I, I don't normally do this but I do remember on that day having a sort of teasing this out and saying, my goodness God you're making this difficult for yourself. Because I don't even love all the people in this house. I'm sharing a house with three other students. I, I certainly don't love all the people doing my course. I don't love all the people that are living in Exeter, where I was living. You say you love the world. How on earth are you going to share that? You're really making it tough. Well, by the time I'd finished reading this book, I had a much better idea. And I do think it's principally through the cross that Jesus certainly talked to me about his love for the world because as well as the cruelty the thing that stands out to me is that God's saying on the cross I love you this much I love you this much I would lay down my life for you there's nothing I wouldn't do for you because I love you I remember reading an account of, of Jackie Pullinger, actually listening to her on a tape, I think, where she described this young lady, she was English, and in her early 20s, she graduated from a music college in the UK, and she found herself in Hong Kong. And she was uh, living in the walled city of Hong Kong, uh, in a slum district, which was mostly notorious for drug triads and gangs, and naively, but faithfully, she'd gone there as a follower of Christ in the hope of shining Jesus' light into that walled city. She must have cut a very odd figure as a slight young girl, white in the middle of this area where she was so far from home. And um, you could say naively or you could say simply, uh, she hired a room and uh, she got some tables and chairs and a table tennis table and she hoped that some of the addicts would just come and hang out there and spend time. Well, they did for a bit. But one particular morning, she went to this room and she found it completely trashed. There, there was nothing in it that was in one piece. Every single thing, every item of furniture, everything that she bought, everything she set up was absolutely smashed to bits. And so she did what you and I would have done. She just um, sat on the ground weeping. But then she did something that probably you and I wouldn't have done. She picked herself up and she pulled herself together 
and she resolved, I'm not giving up. She cleared the room out. Over time, she was able to purchase replacement goods and she tried all over again. And then something very interesting happened. One day, some heavies came to this place and they said, you're wanted. And they took her to the head of their particular triad. And he said to her, we've been watching you. We've watched you from the moment that you arrived in this walled city. And we thought you'd be like all the others, that you'd be here today and gone tomorrow. So we trashed your place and we've been watching you since. And we've concluded that the only reason you can be here is because you care about us. There's no other reason for you being here now. So we'll give you a listen. It's a bit like that with Jesus on the cross, only more so. There is no other reason for him to be stretched out and tortured and dying like that, except he loves you and me this much. And somewhat allied to that, it's not a total answer to the problem of suffering, but it's a partial answer that God can say to us, I know about suffering because I've been there. William Temple, who was once Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote this. Some people say, there cannot be a God of love because if there was and he looked upon the world, surely his heart would break. And a Christian points to the cross and says, yes, it did break. Some people say, it's God who made the world, it's he who should bear the load. And a Christian points to the cross and says, yes, he did bear it. There's another reason, though, why this is God's calling card. And I think the way I put it is this. Here at the cross, paradoxically, is freedom central. Here we're set free from one or two things that dog our lives. There are not many things that I remember back in the days when I was an insurance broker. For two or three years, I was an insurance broker in the heart of the city of London. And at one point, I I was seconded to the the unit that did buildings insurance. And you will know if you have any kind of insurance, there's always small print for what they won't cough up for. And with this kind of buildings insurance, there were two things that you could never put a claim in for. If your building collapsed and it was due to one of these things, tough. And the two things were called latent defect and inherent vice. And my friends, built into you and me is latent defect and inherent vice. And I, like, I can explain it to you in, in such a simple way. If we spent an afternoon together, I'm sure in discussion, it's not a discussion I particularly want to have with you, but if we had a very open discussion, I'm sure you could review your life, even the last year, and I'm sure you haven't even lived the life up to your own standards. Because none of us do. We hope to live life like this, but we look back and we fail. You know, we hope... We wouldn't insult anyone behind their back or we wouldn't fall out with anyone or we wouldn't make hurt anyone else, let's say, you know, just we wouldn't lie. But it happens. But there's something else that's more important than that. That's true, but we certainly don't live life up to God's standards because the main thing we've done is leave him out. None of us, none of us can say we've always lived life to please God. 
Now, there is a sense in all of us that we understand the concept of justice. It's terribly simple, really. If you go into a shop, China shop, you break something, you don't complain if the owner of the shop says breakages must be paid for. You just recognize, yeah, that's fair dues. I understand that. That's called justice. When it comes to standing before God, if he were to demand justice, what kind of price would we have to pay? Well, he's paid for us. In John's Gospel, much nearer the end, when Jesus is on the cross, he shouts something out, which is very interesting, and it's not obvious, I'm afraid, in English. It's translated, it is finished. And it would be so easy for us to think that what that means is Jesus saying, I'm finished. That's the end of the story. That's it. I'm done with this. But that's not at all what it means. It's, a, it's actually, I'm sorry to do this to you, but it's a Greek word called tetelestai, and it's got a specific meaning. And it actually means it's paid. And if you're in huge debt, and you went to an accountant and you paid off your debts in full, the accountant would write on the top of that page, Tetelestai, it's paid, it's complete. You owe nothing now. That's what Jesus did on the cross because he paid in some amazing way for the injury that you and I do to others and principally do to God. I don't have to convince you there's something wrong with our world. Someone said long ago, if you think there isn't anything wrong with our world, then you need your TV set examined. It's true. It's a broken world we live in. And each of us contribute to the breaking of it. And Jesus contributes to the healing of it. It is paid. And before we move on, just one other thing going on on the cross that I, to be faithful to the passage I want to mention. Jesus refers to this as his hour of glory. Because as he says, the ruler of this world will be driven out. There is a spiritual battle going on in life. There are dark forces of evil. And Jesus, in his ruthless obedience to the Father, takes on the powers of darkness. And we will see later on how Satan will lose his dominion of this world through Jesus' obedience. The magnet of the cross. The second step is, will you allow yourself to be drawn towards the cross, to connect with it, to survey it. And thirdly, and finally, and the most challenging of all, the third step, the cross calls us to make a decision. Jesus puts it like this, you have to believe in the light or trust the light while you have it. Let me read you precisely what he says. You're going to have to light just a little while longer, talking about himself. While you have the light, before darkness overtakes you, walk in it. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become children of light. And that phrase, put your trust, is a continuous request. Go on forever putting your trust in the light. This is the hardest step of all. Jesus, in going to the cross, resolved, I wonder if you noticed this, he resolved he would obey the Father. 
Surely the road to the cross was the hardest road anyone could walk. And temptation was there all the time to walk down a different road. He, the disciples could not understand it. Peter took him aside and said, surely not, Lord, you're never going to die. Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking as God thinks. Another disciple, Thomas the Gloomy, just sort of said, resigned, okay, well, let's go with him just so we can die with him. You know, he was a cheery chap. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Your will, not mine, be done. The decision every disciple makes at great personal cost is to pray that ourselves. Father, glorify your name. Your kingdom come. It's a very tough road. But it's a road with reward all the way down it as you have God's company, as you have Jesus' company, as you discover his faithfulness. And it's pertinent for us to think about this today because I don't see it getting any easier for us to follow Christ in our contemporary culture. If you've been reading the newspapers at all, you've seen that with a Scottish politician, haven't you, who just stated to the press her thoroughly orthodox views about marriage and relationships and she wasn't unkind and she wasn't bigoted and she wasn't overblown she just put it out there as it is and boys has she been hit hit for it and so it will be for you and for me but the magnetic appeal of Jesus's love on the cross keeps us walking towards him you know back on the day when he was crucified there were very mixed reactions some people mocked him even while it was going on some people taunted him some people tempted him if you're the son of God why don't you save yourself and get down from the cross he could have done but he didn't one of the thieves next to him also mocked him but the other one trusted in him and the soldier at the foot of the cross recognized Jesus for who he was and asked for forgiveness and got it. What do you see? How will you react? Will you trust the light? To be crucified with Christ means three things, wrote David Watson. First, the person who's crucified is facing only one direction. He's not looking back. Second, the person who's crucified has said goodbye to the world. He's not going back. And third, the person who's crucified has no further plans of their own. They're totally in God's hands. Whatever the situation, they say, yes, Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you haven't hidden from us the path of life. We thank you for sending Jesus into the world for his amazing love that he should reach out for us. And whether we've heard this so many times or today's the first time the penny's dropping, we pray, Lord, that we might come to you afresh to receive your love and forgiveness and to give you back the praise that is worthy of your name. Come, Lord, and lead us 
that we might take these steps towards life and live it to the full. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.